0: All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. If you found that, why don't you stand? We'll read together God's Word. I'd like to start at verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 3 and uh, read down the verse 15. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's begin verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die A time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Join me as we pray. Father, I pray that You would encourage Your people, strengthen our hearts. I pray that You would call sinners to repentance and faith in Jesus. I pray that we might be people that grab hold of what it means to be followers of Christ. And Lord, I pray that this might be good for our souls today. And so help us in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. Most of us in this room would agree that it's very difficult to be hopeful As Christians, it's very difficult to be hopeful in our world and in the United States today. It's difficult to be hopeful in a world that celebrates the killing of an unborn child in its mother's womb. It's difficult to be hopeful in a world that promotes the elevation of gender confusion and has a sense of transgender ascendancy. I think in our country that the last couple of weeks have served as a harbinger of things to come. And I think it's safe to say that for, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer would call it, the confessing church, the church that believes the Bible, I think it's safe to say that there are hard days ahead for the confessing church. We felt that at Hickory Grove, we have a Christian school at Hickory Grove, We always seek to make sure and strengthen our positions on biblical, even sexual worldviews. You look at society and it's enough to make a, a Christian parent, a biblically minded parent, worry for the future. If you're not careful as you think of those things and as you focus on those things... As you think about the continued downward spiral of our society, it would be very easy to start feeling a sense of futility. You you feel it bubble up to the surface. It can almost be a sense of hopelessness. That, That is, if you look at life as just being under the sun. That's what the preacher has done in chapter one and chapter two. We've gone through it in three weeks. And in chapters one and two, what the preacher does, and that's the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, what the preacher does, he talks about the state of the world as an almost depressing place. He talks about the state of mankind as almost living in futility. You read chapter 1 and 2 and you think, this is not a very hopeful book. I can't believe we're going to spend all these uh, months in, in Ecclesiastes. But when you get to chapter 3, something happens. In chapter 3, the preacher starts getting our eyes up. In chapter 3, he turns the light on. In fact, chapter 3, the preacher going to strengthen our souls as he casts our vision not on what we do or have done, but on what God does. Chapter 3 tells us that so many of us, sitting in this room, watching online, so many of us have gotten it wrong when we try to think of where God's place is in our world. So we try to fit Him in on a Sunday. We try to fit Him in to the blessing at lunch or at supper. We try to fit Him in with a few minutes of 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 Bible reading in the morning or in the evening, and all of those things are really good things to do. But you need to be careful with the language when you start talking about trying to fit God into your schedule. You even hear it in the language of, of talking about how prayer in school was thrown out in the 50s and 60s, and how people threw God out of the school. How small do you think God is? You see, chapter 3 doesn't talk about us trying to find a place for God in our world. The preacher flips it over, and chapter 3 talks about you and I finding our place in His world. Chapter 3 introduces us to this all-consuming goodness of God, this, this overwhelming and joyful security of knowing that this is my Father's world. And all that is, is God's. All that is, is God's. And if you can start thinking about that and thinking like that, it's a liberating thought. It's an encouraging thought. It should be be food for your soul. So instead of wringing your hands at every foul turn of society, and those turns are going to get more and more foul... Let's, let's you and I turn our faces into the warm light of the Creator and let's rejoice in the soul-saving grace of His Son, Jesus. I want to spend the next few moments just taking this, taking this chapter and incur- I want it to be an encouragement to your soul. I want you to hear that no matter what, this is important for believers to grasp, no matter what our God is in absolute control. Now, when I say absolute control, I don't mean that God has set it up and He's letting it go and if things get out of whack, He'll come in here and there and fix it. When I say absolute control, I mean He is in control of the very events of your day-to-day life. What I'd like to do, let's take a look at what the preacher says about God. All of this from verse 1 down to verse 15, every bit of it is about God. Let me just give you a couple of, of points as we go through. Here's the first one I want you to see. A basic, basic to Christianity. Number one, God's plan is good. God's plan is good. You hear it in the language in verse 1. Let me read verse 1 and read it slowly. Listen to what the preacher says. Circle the words: For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under the sun. Hear the words? Everything, every matter, every event, all of it. There is not one rebellious molecule in the entire universe. There is not one rebellious ray of light. and I've had to preach this to myself today. there's not one rebellious drop of rain that that rainfall of the day, God's plan. There's nothing that escapes the all-encompassing plan of God. Creation itself is marked by an orderly fashion that you find in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that tells us there is a divine and perfect and good plan. I mean, even even the sentence in verse 1, even the sentence indicates that God is taking pleasure in the unfolding of His plan. Let Let me take you back there to verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. You see that little phrase, every matter under heaven, every event under heaven. That word matter or event uh, comes from a Hebrew word with its three consonants. There are no vowels in Hebrew. Three consonants, hefish is how you would say it. And it actually means this is a good event, that he's finding pleasure. Bring that back here and it's the idea that God's plan, every bit of it, all things that are happening are good. That the world you live in as it unfolds, it's good. Now, we'll get to the poem. It's what everybody knows about Ecclesiastes is verses 2 through 8. But when you read those two, uh, when you read that, that poem in verses two through eight, when you read it, you'll see that there are good things listed and there are bad things listed. There are hurtful things listed, there are happy things listed. And the indication is that every one of those events listed by God, whether it's bad or good, joyful or painful, some of you walk through some of the darkest times, all of that is in the hands of God, and it should not cause you alarm. Of of all the people in the United States, of every person that lives in this country, Christian people should take great comfort that our sovereign God is in absolute control. That His plan is good. Our question should be more like this. Our question should be a couple of questions you can ask yourself. Okay, uh, how do I honor God going through this event? How do I honor God when I'm having to walk through a divorce that I didn't ask? I didn't ask for that. It's not what I wanted. How do I honor God? Or you might ask another question. Um, how do I, as a Christian man, how do I grow? Or you might ask a good question. Is Since we're carrying the gospel, we believe in the gospel, it saves people. We might ask, as I walk through this, this tragedy, and you get tears coming on your face, you might ask the question, how do I actually adorn the gospel? We don't change the gospel. Adorn means to, to shine light on, to, 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 to beautify, to, to make it look good. How do I, or you might ask a simple question, how do I fight sin in this? How do I fight sin? You see, God's plan is good, and He is in absolute control. Let me give you another, um, another thought from this passage. You have to take it in uh, verses 2 down to verse 8. Let's take the whole poem. Second point is uh, God has set boundaries. He set the boundaries. You'll see it when you read it. I mean, here's the most well-known passage from the book of Ecclesiastes, popularized um, by a band called The Birds in 1965. The song, uh, Turn, Turn, Turn. The song was actually written by uh, Pete Seeger, who was a folk singer. Uh, he took he took this passage, added four words to it. It's remarkable. It's the number one hit. It was nothing but the Bible. Now, they completely uh, used it out of context. It was misused, but it was still the Bible. And you probably know this passage from... From that song. What you have here are, are seven couplets of four. You have 14 opposing things that happen. When you read it, you have a 14 opposing actions. If I were a really good preacher, since his uh, denomination's of seven, I would say this is a perfect plan. But, but uh, let's, let's go beyond numerology, let's get into what, what's written here. I don't think it's wise to go through and just pick apart each one of these things and try to explore each element. Remember, this whole thing is a poem. From verse 2 to verse 8, it is a unit. And when you're interpreting and reading poetry like this, you, you need to take it as a whole. What is it that the preacher is saying? I mean, just read a little bit of it. A time to be born on one side and a time to die. A time to plant something really good and a time to pluck up what is planted. Then the reverses and says a time to... Till something really bad and a time to heal something really good. You you get the idea. You have these opposing actions that go back and forth. And what the preacher is saying is life is composed of varying and different events. And every one of those events that you go through, they're all in, in God's time. Because He's Lord over time. I mean, this is what we preached in, in Christmas. Isn't that what, what Paul says in Galatians chapter 4? Didn't, didn't Paul say that it was in the fullness of time that God sent forth His Son? The gospel writer named Mark, when he starts the gospel of Mark and he gets to the ministry of Jesus in Mark chapter 1, he, he tells us that Jesus said, the very first thing he preached is, hey, the time has been fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. John chapter 7, uh, John is giving a narration of the events of Jesus' life. And he tells us in John 7 that they came to try and arrest Jesus. But John says, but his time had not yet come. Even the gospel, when Paul is talking about the gospel, he puts it in the the context of time. And he reminds us in in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, that while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You must, you must remember, Christian, you must remember that God is the great author. He is the great artist in time, and, and he's creating this giant and stunningly beautiful, perfect mosaic. A mosaic made up of really small little tiles, and you and I are one tile. We can't see the beauty of the picture. We trust that our God is in absolute control. His plan is good, and He set the boundaries. I'm going to give you a third thing to consider. You'll find in verse 9 and 10, number 3, and that is that God gives, God gives the remarkable. We need to be careful here because oftentimes we think about what God gives as, as those big things. We're praying for miraculous things. We're praying... Uh, for God to change the course of our lives. And oftentimes we overlook the unremarkable. God gives the unremarkable. Let me show it to you in verse 9. 9 and 10. In verse 9 you find the uh, question that he's always asking. You come through the poem and you have a time to be born, a time to die, uh, a time to kill, a time to heal. It goes back and forth, back and forth, all balances out. You get to, chapter, uh, to verse 9 and the preacher says, What gain?" What do I get out of life? What gain is there for the worker from his work? And then he tells us, here's the gain. Here's the gift. Verse 10, look at the gift. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. You read verse 10, and here's the preacher is reminding us, strangely reminding us and himself... That God's gifts are not just the stupendous, they're not just the miraculous, not just the life-changing events. Verse 10 seems to describe everyday mundane events that fill up your time. It, it, it's oftentimes, I come like home from work, and I've been at the office, especially if there's like we've been in the last couple weeks, if nobody's at the office, I've been there and I come home and Connie will say, how was your day? And My answer might be, my day was fine. Not much happened. Which in a preacher's life is a really good thing. Not much happened. But it would be eight or ten hours of unremarkable happenings that happen to be, according to verse 10, a gift. So, so let me just speak to you. Instead of feeling... uh, bored, instead of feeling like you're spinning your wheels, instead of feeling like you're not actually doing something great. It's, it's a mistake to tell our children that God has great plans for your life. It might not be. God might have average plans for your life. I mean, here's, here's what the text says. I know that God has given the business that which to make the men and women find themselves busy with. So instead of feeling bored or slighted, we should be thankful to the giver that he's given us what keeps us busy during the day. And, and, and find a way to... I want you to find a way to do the unremarkable and the undernoticed, and do it to the glory of God. Not seeking to find a way to put God into your world... But finding your place in God's world, it begins with seeing that sometimes in God's world, each uneventful, unremarkable day is a gift from the ruler of the world. My fourth point tells us why. Stay stay with me. My fourth point is that God is the one who makes it all fit. God is the one who brings every bit of that together. He makes it all fit. You get that in verse 11. Verse 11 is kind of the uh, Romans 8.28 of the Old Testament. Remember Romans 8.28? God works all things together for good for those that love Him and call called according to His purposes. God works all things together for good. God works in your life all things together for good. God, God doesn't say all things are good. He works all things together for good. The I mean, sure show where I get that is in verse 11. Verse 11 is the Romans eight twenty eight of the Old Testament. The preacher says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. It might be translated, He, God, has made everything appropriate in its time. God has made it so that everything fits together in its time. God is ruling the universe. He is orchestrating the events of this world to bring about His own glory. You will hear people say that the world is out of control. The world is not out of control. The world is very much in control. So that makes it that we've got to look at the events of our life. Every hurt, every persecution, every discomfort, every dark day, every pain, every tragedy, every time you've been done wrong, any of that has been brought about so that God's people, that you and I, His people, we might display what does it mean to be identified with Christ? What did Paul mean when he says, I've been crucified with Christ? What did the apostles mean when they say, I want to know the fellowship of His sufferings? What did the writer of Hebrews mean when he, when he writes to this persecuted church and he He invites them, look, let's go outside the camp. He had read Leviticus and outside the camp is where you put all the trash. He says, let's go outside the camp where Christ is and let's stand there in his shame and be glad of it. All of those things brought into our lives to show what it looks like for a Christian to bear up under all this world. Has to give us. Not only that, I've been talking. that's that's for you Christians. I want to talk to unbelievers in my fifth point. Number five, it's God. God is the one who put the hole in your heart. God is the one who put that aching, that thirst, that desire, that longing. You, You see it right there in verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, God has put eternity into the heart of man. God is the creator of all people. He, is, he has put this innate longing in us, this unquenchable thirst for more. This thirst that, that, that drives people to find a thousand different terrible remedies. I really think this right here is the foundation for a mountain of, of emotional and maybe even mental struggles is that God has put eternity in us and we seek to find all kinds of ways to fill that hole. But if God has put eternity in our hearts, then eternity can only be filled with the eternal one, Jesus. So for for you that are not yet Christians, let let me insert the gospel here. That God has created us in His image. That image is disfigured because of sin. What it is that separates us from God is sin. Sin that we are born with, sin that we commit, it separates us from God. And there's only one solution. God, who's a just judge, is also a loving Father. He sends Jesus. Jesus, all God and all man. This is what the Bible teaches. Lives perfectly because we can't. At the cross, what He does there is he takes the punishment that we are due because of our sin. God the judge must punish sin. That punishment goes on Jesus. And the transaction, we call it the great exchange, He takes our sin and gives us His righteousness. When you believe, that's what you're believing. When You look to the cross, that's what you're looking to the cross for. is forgiveness and righteousness. God raised him from the dead after he died. God raised him from the dead. He has ascended into heaven and now sits as Lord. And the way the gospel works is you believe. You put your faith in in what God has done. Brings me to my sixth point about God. You'll find it there in verse 11, number six. It's God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty is what matters. I want you to get familiar with that word. I want you to love the sovereignty of God, the bigness of God, the fact that God is in control. I want you to read all of verse 11, but pay very close attention to the last statement in verse 11. Notice what the text says. He has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. We don't know what God has done. We don't know the one billion things that God is doing right now. We don't know what God will do in the future. We can't speak for God. If you're following in the, in the Bible reading plan that we're using at the church, and we're getting into the book of Job, you get to Job chapter 38, you find out we can't even actually question what God does. One of the most freeing things, and I'm asking you to do it today... One of the most soul satisfying and freeing things that you can do is actually trust God. Trust that he's holy, that he's good, that he's just, that he's righteous. Trust that at the cross he's, he's forgiving, that he will bring, he brings men and women to himself. God's sovereignty matters for a reason. Verse 7 tells us why. Or yeah, verse No, not verse 7. My seventh point tells us why. I get verses and points. I get so many points, I get mixed up. God's sovereignty matters for a reason. My seventh point tells us why. Number 7, God is the one who gives happiness. You want want to be happy. Verse uh, Verse 12 and 13, God is the one who gives happiness. Let me read verse 12, 13. Here's an observation you have in verse 12 preacher says, I perceived that there is nothing better for them, that's you and I, there's nothing better for them than to be joyful, to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. That that list from verse 12 and 13, this is what God gives us. Someone asked, does God want us to be happy or does he want us to be holy? My answer to that is yes. Under the lordship of Christ, one of the greatest things you can do is to accept the simple gifts that God has given us and accept them gladly. And use those simple gifts that God has given to men and women Use them the way that God intended them to be used. You you just see the list. You can make it yourself in verse 12 and 13. To be joyful, to simply do good, to find joy in what you eat and what you drink. Verse 13, to do work, to do what you do to the glory of God. Because we believe that no matter what, Our our good God is in absolute control. Now this passage right here ends with a flourish. I'm going to need to leave out verse 15, so let's just pull it out for a moment. I I want to take our attention to verse 14. Verse 14 tells us three great things about God. So let's you and I, in the next few moments we have, let's pick up the pace and let's run as fast as we can to the end of this sermon with three things about God. Here's the first one. This is point number eight. God alone is eternal. You see what the text says in verse 14? God alone is eternal. Whatever God does, that endures forever. Nothing you stake your life on, nothing you invest yourself into, nothing that we see here on earth will last forever. And yet, you know what the gospel teaches? The gospel teaches that any sinner that turns from her sin and puts her faith in Jesus, any sinner that is saved by God's grace and gripped by God's grace is forever secure in Christ. He alone is eternal. There's our hope. He alone is eternal. I'm going to give you another thing about God. You'll see it again in verse 14. Here's point number 9. Not only is God alone eternal, number nine, God alone is perfect. You see that in verse 14? I perceive, this is what what I observe, the preacher says, that whatever God does endures forever. That's the first point. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken away from it. We've talked about God's plan being perfect And a lot of us live our lives and have so many things happen. It's it's hard to actually believe that God's plan is perfect. But we trust that it is in the mosaic of God's sovereign plan. But it's not just his plan that is perfect. His grace is perfect. His forgiveness is perfect. His ability to to heal is perfect. His love is perfect. It's good for us to remember that God's love is perfect. It is perfectly shown to us at the cross of Jesus. God alone is eternal. God alone is perfect. Let me give you one last point, number ten. God alone is to be feared, feared. You you can, if you if you'll feel better with saying, stand in awe. Respect is not strong enough. Fear is the, you might want to say worship. I mean, read it to the end. Verse 14. Let's run all the way to the end of verse 14. I I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it. All of this we've talked about. God has done it so that people fear before Him. Worship Him. God has worked all of the events in your life so that you might be brought to the point of standing in awe of God. God has done everything in your life. God has done everything in creation. That we might stand in awe and worship him. Worship him alone. Now the days ahead, it's going to be important that Christians fear God alone that he is holy and righteous and sovereign and just, that's enough to make us fear him. Why? Because we are sinful and unrighteous and doubting and guilty. It's the great problem that's solved by Jesus. Jesus, who did what we couldn't do, lived holy, who fulfilled all righteousness, he took the judgment, he absorbed the punishment, he victoriously rose from the dead, and provides forgiveness and reconciliation to any sinner who will believe. For the vast majority of you here that are believers, you should be encouraged. Because no matter what, our God is in absolute control. For, for, for those of you that are watching or here that might not yet be Christian. This is what God is doing in your life. He has worked every event in your life because he can do that. He's God. He's worked every event in your life so that you might be brought to the point of standing in all of him and his judgment, repent of your sin, put your faith in Jesus and receive the perfect love of God found in Christ. That's our desire. That you receive the perfect love of God found in Jesus. You join me as we pray together. With your heads bowed this morning as we go to the Lord in a time of prayer and reflection. For every Christian here. Every Christian. what, What is the sin that you need to repent of? What is the thing you need to thank God for? Where is it you need the most help? As I pray, that would be a good thing for you to ask God. Ask Him to help you with that. For everyone that is here and and you're not a Christian, why has God done this in your life? Has He done this to bring you to faith in Jesus? We'd like to talk to you about what it means to turn from your sin and by faith come to Jesus. Father, I pray that you would would be honored at Hickory Grove. I pray that you call people to yourself. I pray that you would encourage believers and strengthen our souls for the task. Give us the ability to trust. Help us to honor you. Father, I pray for those that are, are not Christians, that today they would feel the weight of their own sin and turn by faith to the cross and trust what you've done at the cross. So be honored here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.